Transmission incoming, over. Copy that, transmission received. I've been looking forward to having you on the on the show ever since we talked. You know, I've been really interested in this subject and I've read about it and I'm really excited that your book came out just recently. And so I'm dying to to kind of hear the story from the, the guy who wrote the book. Excellent. So this is just this is just for the audio, right? That's, I, I don't know yeah, you, that's correct. Audio only. <laughs> I'm on PBS in about uh, at about in about an hour and a half and um definitely have to um get ready before that but that's good <laughs> yeah no no worries yeah so what i'll do is i'll just do a, a quick intro and then we'll just kind of get started Sorry. okay hey everybody welcome back to the show so my guest today i'm really excited to host his name is chris derose and he wrote a really awesome book that i am dying to talk about so if you have been following the news at all you know that there's a lot of um, weird election stuff going on, and there's a lot of uh, reasons to suspect that maybe it's not 100% on the up and up, but you might also be surprised to know that this is not really the first time something like this has ever happened, and my guest today is going to talk about some really interesting historical stuff in a book he wrote called The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens. Uh, that's Athens, Tennessee, not Greece. Uh, so I welcome to the show today Chris DeRose. Chris, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so your book, I'm really excited. I haven't read it yet, but I've got it coming. I'm going to read it. It's really interesting, and I've followed this topic for quite some time. So I really wanted to have you on the show to kind of talk about the story in your own words, because I think it's, it's really timely to some of the things we have going on in the United States right now. So I'd like to kind of just open it up to you to kind of introduce yourself and then uh, get into, into the story as, as you know it, because you know it better than, than anybody right now. It's weird to say, right? It's a it's a seventy plus year it made national headlines, and two years ago I knew about it. What everyone else knew about it, right? Um, to that, this story is known anywhere. It's an inch deep, right? That there was this election, a disputed election, a group of World War II veterans who took up arms one last time to ensure their right to vote. And, you know, that's pretty much anyone knows about the Battle of Athens. And most people don't know anything about it. Even some people who uh, are fascinated by the subject of World War II are fascinated by, or, you know, enthusiasts for the Second Amendment. Um, they may not be familiar with this story. And to the extent anybody knew anything, it was just this one sentence, right? Or maybe you had uh, an article about it online or a blog post. But for something that was such a unique event in American history, right? Our first successful and only successful rebellion since the revolution, such a singular event in American history, very little is known about it. And there's reasons for that. Number one, the people who were involved weren't eager to take credit for it at the time. They'd committed a lot of crimes. So they had fired a lot of bullets at law enforcement they had kidnapped sheriff's deputies. They had taken their guns. They had raided a National Guard armory to get ammunition and weapons. And so there's a long list of offenses uh, that these guys weren't eager uh, to be publicly associated with. So that was the first part. The second part, though, is that 
and this was really smart and really magnanimous. Um, the people in this town who'd been terrorized for a decade by this corrupt political machine who had had their right to vote and select their leaders in fair elections stolen from for 10 years forgave the people who had done this to them. They forgave the members of the machine. They stopped at their objective. I think rebellions historically have a real tough time stopping once they've achieved their objective. You know, look at the French Revolution. Um, look at the Cuban Revolution, right? They, they don't want to achieve their objective and as a consequence, they subject themselves to, to decades of turmoil and violence and all kinds of horrible consequences. These veterans said, we came back from the war to marry our sweethearts and raise our kids and start our business or go to school. We never wanted to do this in the first place. You made us do it, but now we're moving on with our lives. And you couldn't move on with life if you're going to end all your persecute the people responsible for the situation in the first place. So those two reasons, first to avoid criminal responsibility and second, so that they would be able to move on with their lives, right, and reconcile and move forward as one community, really kept the Battle of Athens from being better known and really kept the details of the story down to just who was involved from a matter of public record for over seven decades. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that because you're right that so many times that there is kind of a, a ground up rebellion of sorts, it never, almost never stops at the original intent and they find something else to rebel against until they themselves live long enough to become the tyrants and the dictators, right? See Cuba and all these other classic examples. So in a way, this is a, a truly American story right you know we have a very uh, set goal and we're going to achieve that goal and then when that's done we're all going to go have a beer and get back to life uh, so it's, it's it's almost kind of a miracle of sorts in a way that they they had that foresight to limit their scope and not just become complete you know open rebellion against everything Right, and and to not uh, turn into the people that they tried to replace, to not to not take on the worst tendencies of the people that they replaced, because the democratic regime that they replaced ran for office in 1936 on a platform that everyone could get behind. Right, you had corrupt law enforcement in this county, police officers and sheriff's deputies were compensated based on how many arrests they made. And the sheriff would make money based on how many people we could keep in the jail at any given time. It's a really perverse incentive to arrest people and jail people for no good reason. And so in 1936, Paul Cantrell runs for sheriff saying no fee grabbing, right? That's the name for the, that's the, name for the process of arresting somebody who hasn't done anything wrong in order to make a buck. But he runs on hiring good deputies, no fee grabbing. Then he becomes sheriff. And the process doesn't change. And in fact, over time, it gets quite a bit worse, uh, the number of people who are, who are being arrested. You know, if you just base on, I think the number of arrests per weekend after the Battle of Athens, about 15 arrests per weekend. While Paul Cantrell and Sheriff Mansfield ran the county, it was over 100 arrests in any given weekend. So that means about 85% of your arrests were probably uh, done for no good reason. And so 
the administration who came in in 1936, they came in saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to stir the sheriff's office fairly. And they fail, right? And uh, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Probably look at, um, say, a bootlegger or someone who's operating an illegal casino. Says, come on, sheriff, I've been operating for a long time. I donate money to the sheriff's department. Someone's going to do this if you arrest me and shut down my business. Someone's going to do it anyway. So it becomes easy. You know, they inherited this superstructure that was built on corruption, allowing illegal prostitution, allowing illegal gambling, uh, allowing illegal bootlegging. And hey, you know, they had the mentality, hey, someone's going to get paid to do this. We might as well, we might as well, um, you know, we might as well profit from it. And so really to, to take over this office and not just give the other side a square deal in the next election, but to close down the casinos and the brothels and you know, the illegal uh, liquor operations. I mean, really, really an incredible story you know, where these guys, it was really a happy ending here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm curious about the, the individual veterans, right? Because I myself am, am a veteran. You know, I, I served uh, my time into 12 years in the Air Force. So I'm kind of curious about their individual stories. You know, so these guys... You know, obviously they were patriots. They served their country with honor. How did they rally together and decide to take action, right? So what was kind of that catalyst? What did that process look like to go from, yeah, we have corruption to, yeah, we're going to raid it in the National Guard Armory and then go do something about it? I, so you're exactly right. You know, Tennessee prides itself on being the volunteer state, applying a large number of young men and women to America's armed forces. McMinn County, Tennessee, where this all happened, calls itself the volunteer county of the volunteer state. So in World War II, there's a little over 30,000 people in the county and you have 3,500 men under arms. So it's just an incredible, when you think about it, when you think about really women didn't serve in large numbers in World War II, anyone over a certain age or someone who wasn't physically able to serve, you know, Think about that and think about the fact that they sent one out of every, still sent one out of every 10 residents of the county off to serve in World War II. So just incredible patriots and incredible response after Pearl Harbor. These were young men who had never been further than Chattanooga. In many cases, they'd never been further than Knoxville. They'd never been just over the state line into Georgia. And most of them couldn't find Hawaii on a They wanted to respond and serve their country and, and be a part of the response to the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so they come back from war and many of them realize how bad things had gotten while they were away. Oftentimes parents and grandparents and siblings would keep this out of letters to the front, knowing that these young men had enough on their minds and enough to deal with, without hearing stories about their parents getting arrested and harassed or their sisters getting harassed by corrupt sheriff's deputies or having elections stolen from them at gunpoint while they're in harm's way, ostensibly fighting for democracy and fighting for those rights we have as Americans. You know, um, I have a whole chapter on the book talking about, you know, the American values that were discussed in book all throughout the United States. We are the free world going up against the slave world. We choose our leaders in America. Uh, Nazi Germany, you don't get to pick your leaders. In the empire of Japan, you don't get to pick your leaders. In America, we get to, to choose our destiny through our elected officials by voting in free and fair elections. So this is really impressed upon these young men when they're going off to war. And they come back, 
And of course, veterans, you know, they come back, they've gone through this experience, you know, where if you didn't serve, you really don't know what they've seen and what they've lived through. And so they start gathering in the VFW in the basement of the Robert E. Lee Hotel and talking about their shared war experiences. But the conversation keeps coming back to the elephant in the room, which is that there is a corrupt, tyrannical government in charge of their county, in charge of their home. And there's really no way to move forward without confronting this, this, this uh, corrupt political machine. And so they say, it's America, we're gonna form a political party, all veterans of every persuasion, all colors, all um, backgrounds, religious backgrounds, men and women, anyone who served as a veteran is entitled to show up at this convention. We're gonna nominate a slate of all GI candidates. We're gonna run them against the machine. So the intent had just been to challenge the machine at the next election, beat them at the polls, take office and clean things up. Obviously the machine has no intention of leaving peacefully. And so uh, they have over 250 men under arms on election day who are there to make sure that the election goes their way. And so they start arresting GI poll watchers, they're intimidating GI voters, they're allowing illegal votes to be cast at the polls. And then at the end of the day, like they always do, they move the ballot boxes to a location where they control like the jail, like the Cantrell Bank building, like the courthouse, and they do the count and secret. And then the results are whatever they say they are. And so the town, the county really had no functioning democracy, but the, the GIs tried, uh, tried, to, tried to simply beat them at the polls and couldn't, couldn't do it, or at least it wasn't enough, I should say. Yeah. So that's really the catalyst then at that point, you know, they, they try to do the, the honorable thing and work within the systems using, you know, the constitutional processes. They are systematically persecuted really, you know, for being poll watchers and arrested and they're intimidated. And then essentially the election is stolen because you mentioned 250 men under arms. Uh, there's really not a whole lot you can do to, to overcome that, right? Especially if you're on the, the wrong side of the law, quote, quote unquote. So really, it was at that point, then they must have decided, okay, you know, we gave it a good faith effort. We put a party, we ran candidates, we had votes, we did the door knocking. Uh, and then the election was essentially stolen. And, uh, you know, literally stolen, not just they lost and they were unhappy about it. Literally, it was, was stolen. And the whole town observes it, you know, in real time. So it's at that point that they get together and then decide to do something about it. Yes, and I should back up a bit. Normally, what would you do if this happened to you today? If you saw someone stealing a ballot box, right? You'd report it. You'd call the police. Okay, the local police here are the ones doing the stealing. You're not going to get very far with them. Maybe you'd call the state police. You'd call the FBI. You'd contact the Department of Justice. You would reach out to your attorney general. You know, you have so many avenues for recourse in the United States if this were happening today. In 1946, the state of Tennessee was under the control of one man, a guy named Boss Crump, who was based out of Memphis. And he started by taking over the city of Memphis and he built up a machine. You know, he legalized gambling and uh, even during the prohibition years, ref refused to enforce prohibition. As a result, the casinos and the bars would back money to the mayor's operation. He would fund candidates 
and started winning elections all over the state. And so by the time 1946 rolls around, Boss Crump has won hundreds of elections. He literally is the one person who decides who gets to be governor of Tennessee. He's the person who gets to decide who becomes a senator from the state of Tennessee. And there were times over the years where either a governor or a senator would up to Boss Crump, say, you know, who are you? You don't even have a title. You haven't won any elections. I'm the senator. Boss Crump would show you who he was. He would recruit someone, even a total nobody against you, and you'd be out of a job. So Boss Crump really controlled the state of Tennessee. Tennessee elected its judges. So all the elected judges in Tennessee were part of the Crump machine. And so they tried going to the Department of Justice. I found a thousand affidavits in the Department of Justice in the National Archives with people detailing what happened to them. Things you wouldn't believe really happened in America, being forced out of polling places at gunpoint, having ballot boxes stuffed and swapped in front of you, uh, being arrested when you're trying to observe uh, accounting of the ballots, which you were entitled to do under Tennessee law. That went on for a decade. And we weren't going to get any help from the governor. You weren't going to get any help from the state attorney general. Why, why didn't the feds uh, get involved? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, they got involved a little bit, right? This was just so flagrant that they couldn't, couldn't not respond in some way. And so, you know, years later, they served up some lower level henchmen and they put them on trial for something that was done in the 1940 campaign. And of course, they're in front of a corrupt judge who's a federal judge, but federal judges are recommended by U.S. senators. U.S. senators are controlled by Boss Crump. Boss Crump decides who the federal judges are in Tennessee. So you get a group of guys who engaged in some really blatant abuses of people's rights at the polling place, assaulting people with nightsticks, and then cl closing down a polling place at 10 a.m. when only 50 people had voted, completely disenfranchising the people who lived in this precinct. And the judge dismissed the charges against three out of the six and then fined the remaining three one penny. So that's what, that's what happened when the justice tried to intervene. So they tried to intervene twice. They serve up some lower level guys. Mostly they're not very effective at, at punishing them and certainly doesn't deter the bosses of McMinn County from continuing doing exactly what they're doing. If anything, I feel like it's almost an affirmation for them that, okay, when the DOJ responds, it's gonna respond by taking out some of our lower level guys, but really, you know, finding them one penny or making them serve a couple weeks in jail, that's nothing. They can do that standing on their head. Let's keep going. If anything, it was almost like encouragement to arrest these guys and then give them such uh, minor punishments. And I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, local elections where there weren't federal candidates on the ballot really were considered local matters at the time from the perspective of the Department of Justice and FBI. So there was some of that. Today, this would very much, you know, if someone's stealing a mayoral election, the FBI is gonna get involved, the Civil Rights Department of the DOJ is gonna get involved. Back then, it wasn't really considered a federal matter, it was considered a local matter. Uh, number two, though, I think that the DOJ, first the Roosevelt and the Truman White House has to proceed with caution against offending Boss Crump by going into his territory and rounding up his people and making life difficult for uh, bosses who are part of his statewide network. And so not only are these guys have their, not only do they have their backs up against the wall on election night, 1946, this is 10 years of this. 
of trying to sue, trying to file lawsuits, of trying to get the DOJ involved, trying to get the governor to help, trying to get the attorney general to help, trying to get the local district to prosecute. They try everything and nothing works and nothing could possibly work because of the way things were set up. And so it was take this stand, this, you know, take up arms, go up against the sheriff and his men, demand those ballot boxes, get them out of there, or you're not going to get a fair count. And if you try to resolve it in court subsequently, well, you already know what's going to happen. We've been down that road for a decade, and you know you're going to lose. And so they really had their backs up against the wall in a very extraordinary way that could not be replicated today. Yeah, so I'm thinking there are so many parallels to that and what's happening right this moment in American society that it, it's almost kind of shocking. You know, I mean, I, I knew the gist of the story, but, you know, all the details are important. You know, and I, I think of what's happening right now just in the news, you know, the, uh, the Trump campaign is basically alleging voter fraud. They have thousands of affidavits, right? And uh, they've put in their court uh, dockets and they've been more or less rejected all the way across the board. And the Supreme Court has basically said, you know, we're going to wash our hands of it because we don't have any jurisdiction into, into state matters of voting, right? And we're kind of seeing some parallels. So in, in some ways, there was never really a long-lasting um, resolution to the problem in Athens, Tennessee. And I wonder how, how prevalent that really is, you know, at scale, but also in other communities, too, at the same time. So one thing I just want to make absolutely clear, and this is coming from the perspective um, of, of a Republican, of an attorney who has been working on election integrity issues for 13 years in five different states. I've been there. I've had observers on the ground. I've trained poll watchers. I've gone into court uh, to fight those really rare instances of election fraud or election malfeasance. And it has to be said, we had a fair election in this country on November 3rd, and Joe Biden won, and he, he got the majority of the Electoral College. And so yeah, you've got people who are coming out and saying, well, I saw something, right? The problem is, when it comes time, when, it, when the rubber hits the road and you've got to go under in a court of law, that's actually not happening. And so these legal challenges that are being brought in a court of law, they're being rejected by very good judges. In many cases, these are judges that were appointed by the President of the United States, right? And right. So, so when it comes time to actually make these out, you know, you're having a press conference, you're saying it's fraud, and you're going into court, and you're not saying it's fraud because you know you're going to lose your law license uh, because you don't have a good faith basis for making that argument, mm. right? And so, and honestly, if you, if, you, if, you, if there were serious charges of voter fraud or malfeasance at the November 3rd election, you would have an all-star cast of Republican lawyers. If you think back to 2000, right, where the election came down to one state of Florida, and you know both sides had 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 legally credible arguments. They had cases to make in court. You had all-star lawyers on both sides. Both sides were attracting their very best lawyers, right? You had the best Democratic lawyers on one side, you had the best Republican lawyer on the other side. Where are the best Republican lawyers in all this? It's not because they don't want the president to win. If anything, President Trump's strongest supporters within the Republican Party are the conservative legal community, are people who are the objectives of the Federalist Society, right? Because the president has, in their view, in my view, picked so many good judges, right? They'd love to see him for four more years. But without some sort of credible evidence that could overturn the results of the election, there's just nowhere to go in court. 
right? And so the Supreme case that was brought to the Supreme Court was, was weird. But basically the state of Texas, and I think they were ultimately joined by 17 other states, mm-hmm. saying, hey, Pennsylvania, you didn't handle your elections correctly, which to me, really not a state's rights position, really not a consistent position in respecting the sovereignty of other states and respecting the constitutional provision that every state gets to decide how to conduct elections, right? The time, place, and manner of elections, according to the Constitution, the states at least get first crack at that. So Texas trying to tell Pennsylvania they're running their elections wrong, right? The Supreme Court's not going to be interested in hearing that. In fact, seven of the, the nine judges, justices said, yeah, that's, that's not even a claim that you can bring. And then justices said, even if you'd brought it, we would have turned you down. So we could have right. let you come into the court. We still would have rejected your argument at the end of the day. So I think this story is important for, for a number of reasons. And I think it's very relevant today for a number of reasons. Number one, when we talk about vote fraud, we challenge the integrity of elections, right? Let's be really careful about using terms like this because things like this really did happen in American history. You know, the struggle for the right to vote particularly for people of color, right, in this country. It's not been a straight line, it's not been a smooth line, and it's not been, it's not a right that's, that was, was easily gained. You know, there was a lot, of, um, a lot of people got hurt, some people lost their lives trying to secure the right to vote for others. So I think when we, when we say things like, well, I've been the victim of voter fraud today, well, you know, the courts are open and you can go prove that in court. And so, you know, there were, there were been, been over two dozen lawsuits um, either filed by the president's campaign or filed by people seeking to overturn the results in a state that was certified for Joe Biden. They didn't go anywhere. You know, we had several of them here in Arizona and they didn't go anywhere. Um, you know, we had an audit uh, of our machines. We have an audit by state law and the hand count matched, matched up with what the machines missed. You know, and our entire counting process was live streamed over the internet. We had election observers who were able to walk in and, and watch everything that was happening. So when we talk about election fraud, what do you think the fighting bunch would have said if they were alive today? And you said, oh, you know, I'm the victim of election fraud. <laughs> well, why? You know, why don't we? They would have loved to have been able to go into court and made their case and got on the stand and said, yeah, because I've, I've seen the affidavits in these cases where, you know, in the 1940s, these guys are forced out of polling places at gunpoint. And they wrote affidavit to the attorney general and nothing happened. So forces you out of a polling place at gunpoint today. That's a big They're deal. going to prison for it. They're going to go to prison for it. It's literally not happening today. Um, and so, you know, there are rules about, you know, basic free state, every jurisdiction allows some mechanism for people to come in and observe the process. You know, in Arizona, um, we test, we have representatives from every political party here libertarian, Democrat, Republican, who can be on hand to test the machines before they're used, and who could be present for the audit to make sure that the paper ballots match up with what the machine says. And so, um, you know, the people who fought the would have loved to have been able to go into court and to get a fair hearing in court. The problem was when they tried that, they went up against corrupt judges who were bought and paid for, who uh, threw their cases out of court and then made them pay the government's attorney's fees. <laughs> Wow. What, what a heck of a contrast, right, between then and now. And so, you know, I can just tell you, like, um, in 2009, I was the, the lawyer for the Republicans in Virginia, and they have their elections in odd-numbered years. 
I had over 1,000 trained election observers throughout the state, and I had about 235 lawyers working for me that day. And the president similar operations like this in every contested state in the country, right? And actually, it's very telling that you don't see those people who worked for these election integrity operations having press conferences saying, hey, something bad happened. I got reports. This is none of that. Look, watch what those people are saying on Twitter. They're, they're not alleging voter fraud. They're not in specific instances of some sort of malfeasance that would have um, changed the outcome of the election. So I think I got about 350 reports that day from every corner of Virginia. So it's a state of about 10 million people. It's a swing state. I had, you know, 1,200 people out watching, but we also had the voter hotline, you know, very widely publicized. If you see something at the polls, please call us. We'll respond to it in some way. We didn't have anything that remotely rose to the level of actual fraud. You know, I've thought of mistakes because mistakes happen in places where humans are in charge of things. Like in Arizona, you know, we were growing very quickly, so we have new zip codes all the time. And we have voter ID law. And so people were showing up and getting turned presenting their ID because the zip code changed since they got their driver's license. They live in the same exact house, but the zip code doesn't match them on file. That's a mistake, right? Those right. people clearly should be allowed to vote. And so I got that report. We contacted the county recorder's office, the people running the election. They gave options to the election judges to start letting those people vote as long as they have the same street address, even if the zip no longer matches up. We, we resolved that problem. That's typically what you see. To see any kind of out-and-out out fraud, I mean, we really have all the procedures in place to happening. People sides allowed to observe and watch and judges there's a judge on hand on election day to to take any any disputes um one example um so in arizona all state governments all governments in the state of arizona state county federal i'm sorry state county municipal they have to conduct business in english and uh there was a vote count going on in southern arizona where the election judges were communicating with each other in spanish and so I had an observer in the room who just didn't speak Spanish and he didn't hear saying to each other. And so they're, they're letting votes in and letting votes out based on, on something that he's able to understand. So I was able to call down there, explain, hey, you know, in Arizona, we have this business in English. Um, and it's, I'm, it's not, I'm not required as the lawyer for the Republican candidate to find a Spanish speaking lawyer or observer to go in there just to find out what's happening with the process. So they switched over to English. You know, but that's the sort of thing you, you see, you don't really see like the out and out fraud. And I grew up in Chicago, so I grew up hearing stories about, you know, 1960 election and President Kennedy ballot boxes moving around and you know, how many votes do you have over there? How many do you need? That sort of thing. Um, and you know, Chicago probably still has some of the most corrupt and worst run elections in the country, but it's not happening in a swing state. Um, but, but I think your listeners can have every confidence that we had a fair election in this country on November 3rd. Um, there's never a perfect election. Uh, but if there was like real evidence that could overturn the result of the election, people would be going under oath and testifying in court. And it's just not happening in court. So the judges aren't being presented with any evidence that would undermine um, the outcome of the election and undermine these state certifications. Yeah, no, thanks for, for giving your perspective on that. You know, it's, 
it's refreshing to hear somebody who has legitimate experience in that realm from the, you know, from the legal side, you know, you, you mentioned that you've been dealing with elections and stuff for so long and, you know, it's, it's so, it's so murky, right? Because we have guys like Rudy Giuliani, right? Who is a respected lawyer, essentially, right? I mean, he's been on legal teams for, for forever, you know, and he, he kind of has that reputation. You have Sidney Powell and you have Lynn Wood. Lynn Wood might be a complete crackpot. I'm not sure, but, um, you know, in the things that they're talking about, you know, you would, you could swear by the way they talk about them, right? That it's a done deal. They have everything they need in the world uh, and that it's, it's all provable. But then to your point, you know, no one has seen the evidence. We have a lot of accusations, right? We have a lot of affidavits, uh, allegedly. I mean, maybe they don't even exist. I'm not sure. But, you know, and it kind of becomes a question of like, how much is enough, right? Are the affidavits themselves enough to kind of give uh, the narrative credit of, you know, something going on? Or is that just kind of one piece? Like, how does how do they go and make all these claims and yet we haven't seen any traction from any of it? Like how, where's the disconnect, I guess. I mean, yeah, well, what you do is you'd, you'd go into court and you'd put these people under oath and they testify and they have, you know, it's really cross examination and direct examination are some of the best tools for getting to the truth that have ever been invented. You take the stand, you take an oath, to tell the truth. You're under penalty of perjury. You describe what you saw. God gets to ask you questions. That's not going on in any meaningful way in courtrooms throughout the United States, despite this number of lawsuits. And I think you're right. I think some of these people, like Sidney Powell, were people who had good reputations before this, and who, after this, rightfully are not going to have good reputations. <laughs> She's talking about servers getting confiscated, Germany. And, uh, that was, I mean, this is, man. This is just not happening. Yeah. You know, this is just not happening. And um, I'll give you another example of, of something that I've gone into court to fight. So in 2009, President Obama picks Hillary Clinton to be Secretary of State. Kristen Gillibrand is picked to be her replacement in the U.S. And so there's a special election for that congressional district, which was a winnable district for the Republicans. So let's try to win the first election of the Obama era, start the comeback. And it was a just maybe about an hour north of New York City, where this district began. And in New York, to avoid really just getting by property taxes, they allow you a certain exemption. It's called a star exemption for your primary residence. And if you have a vacation home, you have to you know, pay, a higher, pay property taxes at a higher rate on a vacation home than on your primary residence. So what happened in this case, everyone has their vacation homes up about an hour in New York City. You get out of the city, it's, it's, it actually gets quite rural and uh, it's nice, it's a beautiful part of the country. And people were claiming their star exemption on their properties in New York City, which is where they live, and obviously where they're gonna want, you, where you're gonna most protection from property taxes. But then they're voting on their vacation homes. They're voting on their vacation homes because that's a swing district. The Democrats right. don't need their help in New York City. They're voting in swing districts north of the city. Well, that's a real problem. And if, if, it, if it had been a problem we'd sort of been aware of in time, maybe we, we could have tried to go into court to stop it from happening. It was something realized after the fact and went into court uh, to try to resolve. That's the thing you see, right? You see problems with the voting law. You see questions and ambiguities within the voting 
laws, but you know, people bringing in piles of ballots to, to, to dump into to, you know, ballot boxes. I mean, this is just not happening. And one of the things that we do with electronic machines, so like in Arizona, we use kind of like a Scantron, almost like you would take a test school, you'd fill out, you'd connect an arrow next to your preferred candidate. And then we run them through machines. And we, we take a percentage of those paper ballots and we compare them to the result on the machines to make sure that they perfectly square up, right? We had, um, and we had a couple of votes that were, you know, that were Biden votes that were counted for Trump. And we had a couple of votes that were Trump votes that were counted for Biden. But that's just sort of within the margin of error on the machines. And once that margin of error gets high enough or the election gets close enough, then we do a hand recount to the whole state. And you know, every state has some sort of mechanism for, for those recounts, for, for having those additional steps. And so really what you're most likely to see, and you will see it are mistakes, because that's what you're gonna see in any system that's run by people, but nothing on the level of pensional fraud and nothing on the order of mistakes, you know, big enough and widespread enough to overturn the result of an election. You know, one of the things we do very well, typically, we run states, we run elections at the county level, at the city level, at the local level. And so you would really need a conspiracy among all of the counties of a state or all the cities of a state. It'd have to be very widespread. Different counties use different voting machines. There are different methods of, of casting ballots. And so um, you'd have to have a widespread conspiracy among a number of different jurisdictions to add up to fraud. And nobody pulled that off without getting detected. Right. And you have members of a party who are involved in the process, um, either as election judges or as, you know, the parties get to pick election judges who actually sits in the room and rules on questions of, of, of fairness or questions of election law. So we have all those mechanisms and the fighting bunch, these guys who took up arms because they had no other choice because their back was completely up against the wall would have loved to have been part of an election like this. You know, none of them are around anymore to have participated in the 2020 election. But they would have loved to have been able to just show up and not have anyone pull a gun on them yeah. and cast their ballots and been able to show up at the time of the count to watch and see what had happened. Um, you know, is the right under Tennessee law? Um, they would have, they would have loved that, and so, the, but that option wasn't available to them. So, after the, you know, the Battle of Athens, Tennessee, we talked about how they, they didn't go kind of the, the logical next step, right, and go after the governor, right, because you know we know that the there was institutional corruption all the way to the top within the state. So, was that a catalyst for maybe other areas at that time to kind of address some of these kind of things? Did it put any pressure on you know the the judges and the county commissioners and and eventually the governor to kind of you know clean up their act at all? So, like, did that help in long term? That's an excellent excellent question. Uh, so yes, the short answer is yes. Actually, the Battle of Athens ends up destroying the machine statewide because there's this moment where people, oh my gosh, I can't believe after we put these boys through World War II and brought them back, we made them go through this just to get their right to vote. This isn't right. We really need to do something about this. And so Crump was persona non grata. He actually tried to take out full page newspaper ads 
to say that he had no affiliation with the guys who got overthrown in McMinn County. So I had no who he was in charge over there. I have never met them. I have nothing to do with it. Nobody buys it. And so um, and it was, what about you, Justice Department? You look 10 years and they've got the receipt, everything they sent you. You governor of Tennessee, you have telegrams, veterans saying, hey, we need some observers here. We need the state police. We need the National Guard. And you ignored them. So the governor actually costs the governor re-election. Um, the governor destroys the political career of the governor who's in charge. The whole edifice just down, where you start seeing a lot of veterans getting involved in politics. And I think this was, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, right? No, no less an authority than Eleanor Roosevelt, probably the best respect in America in 1946, writes about the Battle of Athens in a column. And the title of the column is McMahon County, a warning, right? This is a warning. If you try to do this elsewhere, these men know how to fight and they've been through it. We'll fight you. Some of them will fight you rather than passively let you steal elections from them. And so I think the Battle of Athens probably stopped a hundred other Athens from being throughout the country because people realized, okay, there's only so far we push this. These guys are back. They've earned their right to vote, their right to participate in a fair election, and they will assert themselves if we make them. And so this just destroys, wipes out the corrupt machine in, in Tennessee. His candidates all start losing. It's, it's a horrible stigma and uh, to be associated with him. And even people who've been part of his machine repudiate him and run for office on good government platforms. And I think throughout the country, people took notice. You know, the Battle of Athens really served notice that this generation, this greatest generation, um, had returned from war and had intended to, had intended to vindicate their rights. Uh, under the Constitution, the way that they had done, you know, the way that they had done for other countries elsewhere around the world, they were going to stand up for the rights in America. Yeah, really, it's it really just seems more and more like a miracle, really, you know, that one that they were able to to pull that off in in such kind of a low level, right? We're talking one city, and two that it, it stopped where it stopped and didn't. Uh, escalate into something terrible that could have turned into you know a regional conflict and three is that such a low level thing you know relatively low level in the in the terms of you know combat goes was able to have such long-lasting effects that that went so broad you know it's it really was right place right time right people you know and maybe just even a little bit of divine intervention to give it just enough to where it gets the job done but not too much to where it upsets the apple cart completely yeah no i mean i think there's a lot of divine providence involved in this i think primarily nobody dies i think it's a very different story if someone dies how despite a six-hour firefight and multiple bombings of the jail nobody loses their life plenty of hospital that night and plenty of people go home wounded and don't go to the hospital that night, but nobody loses their life. And I think it's a very different story if that had happened. And I think not only was that really more likely than not to happen, given just how they are to the jail from the GI's main position to the jail, the length of time, the number of rounds exchanged, the ability, right, to put on the right? Because we're very experienced fighters. Nobody died. 
afterwards, once the jail is liberated and some serious thought at, at, at payback with these guys who tried an election from them and have been stealing from them for a decade, someone's able to clown the crowd, you know, and um, prevent a massacre. So I think if any of those things had happened, if someone had just died in the course of the battle or the GIs had managed to really hurt somebody and then kill someone, and it really happened in the aftermath of the battle, it's a very different story than the one we're talking about. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, it's a, it, it, it's almost, it's almost too good to be true in a way, right? In, in some ways, but, but it really happens. Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction, you know, cause. Uh, As a nonfiction writer, I find that that is always the case. This is stuff yeah. I could not make up. It is stuff I would not get away with making up. You know, I love to, love to read feedback readers and Goodreads. There's a guy who started his review by saying, if this were a novel, I would have put it down. And I would have said, this is unbelievable. I'm not going to suspend disbelief. If this were a novel, I would just wouldn't be able to pop. But it all happened. Yeah. No, absolutely. Fantastic story. Look forward to maybe uh, seeing the movie someday, if, if that's ever in the works, which would be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I hope, I hope because I want people to not only to, to know the story, but you know, to, to really appreciate the, the plight of the veterans and to appreciate what it takes to have those safe and fair elections in this country. And sometimes it takes a lot, right? And we've sacrificed a lot over the, the course of this country to give us those elections. And, you know, it, it's messy. It's confusing sometimes, you know, and, uh, but at the end of the day, that's really the thing that sets us apart from, from every other country is the ability to have a, a fair and free and open election and to choose. Yeah, to have that in common with other countries. It's, it's an idea that we've exported, right? Well, has done so much to expand freedom and representative government in the world uh, and to protect, to protect those rights for the countries that have, have chosen that path. You know, one thing I would encourage listeners to do if they are really concerned about integrity in America is to get involved as a poll watcher in the next election or if their lawyers get involved. Because there's, orga there's organization in every state, every campaign, every presidential campaign, every statewide campaign, the political parties, election integrity efforts in every state. And they'll train you in state election law and they'll send you somewhere where you can observe the press. And, you know, that's something I would encourage everybody to show up and do because it's always hard to get people involved and to get people to sit in a polling place all day to watch what happens. But you play a major role in making sure that the elections run fairly and that everyone who shows up with the right to vote gets allowed to vote. Anyone who shows up for some reason isn't eligible to vote, you know, that ballot doesn't get counted. I mean, this is an important role and it's one that everybody can play and there are never enough bodies. I promise you, um, you will not get turned away if you show up offering the regard. And we shall be lucky we live in a country where you can observe the process. Uh, not only where we get to pick our leaders, but where we get to play a role in making sure that the count proceeds fairly. No, that's great advice. You know, we, we all need to get it, get involved. We need to have skin in the game. We can't just all take a passive approach to it and hope it works out. If we're concerned, we need to, to do something about it and finding out what those resources are and then uh, executing those within the, the realm of, of the law, because it's all well-defined, well-established, you know, and, and that's how we, how we do it. So I want to thank you for coming on today. 
I want to thank you for writing this book. It's very interesting. So uh, once again, the book is called The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens. And do you have a website people can go and learn more about your, your books and, and other information? I do. It's uh, christerosebooks.com. So C-H-R-I-S-D-E-R-O-S-E com. You can connect with me. You can learn more about my other books. And I actually just started a podcast of my own, which you may be interested in as a veteran. When I was researching the fighting bunch, I came across this story in a 1946 newspaper about a Marine who was declared dead on Iwo Jima. 10 months later, everybody in his hometown says he came back and then he disappears again. This made national news in 1946. It triggered an FBI investigation, a four state hunt by state police. All kinds of weird things happened afterwards. And so I'm investigating and trying to get to the bottom of this incredible story about whether this guy could have really made it off Iwo Jima alive and then disappeared somewhere in the United States, or if somebody impersonated him and convinced his whole hometown that he was really the guy they'd grown up with and known their whole lives. And so it's called the Phantom Podcast, and I've got ways to listen to that. It's anywhere anywhere you download podcasts, but also on my website, christerosebooks.com. So thank you for letting me give that a plug as well. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm gonna have to check that one out. That, that sounds like let a good me know one. what you think. I'm this. This is not easy running a podcast. It's a big learning curve. Yeah, there's and, there's a lot to it, but once you kind of get the hang of it, it's it's a lot of fun because it gives you a really good outlet to to talk about cool ideas, uh, and an excuse to talk to interesting people such as yourself, which would be hard to talk to otherwise. So. No, I appreciate it. And thank you for the invite. It's really nice to meet you. And thanks for having me on. Yep. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. And once again, it's ChrisTheRoseBooks.com. Go check it out, everybody. All right, Chris, thanks for being on the show. We'll catch up some other time. Yeah, please let me know. Once you read the book or listen to the podcast, shoot me an email. Let me know how you like it. Okay. Thank you. Goodbye. Good one. Bye-bye. Transmission incoming. Over. Copy that transmission received.